who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Rogues of the Black Fury, episode 29. Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Heerman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travisherman.com slash rogues. Chapter 48. So many things Javin would never have imagined, not so long ago, that he would experience. One of those things would have been galloping headlong in the dead of night across the foothills of a distant farthy mountain. Halhamut raised its jagged crown ahead of them into a few silvery wisps of cloud, a craggy black silhouette against the starlit heavens. The sky lightened in the east with the coming day. Another one of those things would have been carrying the bodies of dead city guardsmen to the river, weighting their bodies with stones, and tossing them into the river. Such a task made him feel no better than a back-alley cutthroat. In the moonlight, he had seen their faces disappear into the river current, water filling their mouths. The Kalads stabled in the high temple were all fine, well-bred beasts, with sleek coats and corded muscle. In the open country, their superior night vision allowed them to run like the wind. He was unaccustomed to the high-backed, farthy-style saddle, which was a bit too small, but he could not complain. He listened to the rumble and thump of the fifteen beasts as they pounded up the pale swatch of road leading vaguely toward Halhamut. As they traveled, however, the road beneath their mount's feet grew less and less distinct, as if civilization itself petered out a few leagues from the city. He was grateful for the good sleep the night before. If not for that, he would have been much wearier than he was now. After such a long day, fraught with tension and exertion, after flight and melee and subterfuge, and perhaps even a glimmer of hope, there came a moment when he thought his body might tumble out of the saddle, and he would be happy to lie upon the rocky road and stare up at the stars. But that feeling passed quickly. 
He wondered how the other Furies, these stone-hard men, experienced the weariness. Perhaps they were so accustomed to fighting through it that they hardly noticed it at all. After three hours of hard riding, the night began to recede, and Mother Inanan dipped her face behind the distant western peaks. The ground rose beneath them, and the air cooled. Even strong, well-fed Kalads flagged after such a long-distance uphill run, so the band stopped for a bit of rest and breakfast amid a desolate cluster of pocked, reddish-gray boulders, one of many such clusters scattered across the open slopes. Practically no vegetation grew in this coarse, gravelly soil, save for sparse patches of scrubby thorn bushes and a profusion of ancient moss and lichen. The rocks and boulders provided only sporadic cover for the Fury's approach. Any sharp-eyed lookout would easily see them coming. As Javin slid off his mount and stretched his weary back and buttocks, he looked toward the mountain peak, still perhaps two leagues distant. Against the diminishing stars, the summit appeared chopped away with a few divine axe strokes, and the slopes fell away like a draped blanket. Perhaps Halhamut was a dead fire mountain. A few wisps of cloud clung to the near side of the peak, but beyond Halhamut, a huge roiling tower of dark gray clouds heaved up over the peaks, with indistinct skirts of lightning-spattered rain. Javin was no augur of weather, but he expected that the approaching rain would drench them within the hour so much for keeping their powder dry. Rusk took out a small pouch and withdrew a handful of apple leathers and bok jerky. Five minutes, he said, before thrusting the handful of food into his mouth. Carl approached Rusk, unrolling one of the maps onto a nearby rock, and they discussed something in low tones. Tonin sat on a rock nearby, looking glazed with exhaustion. Javin said, How's your head? My head and arse are pounding out a cadence. Mackett offered Tonin a greenish-brown leaf about the size of a finger. "'Chew on this. It'll take the edge off the pain. But when the taste turns sweet, spit it out right away, or else the effects will reverse themselves.' Tonin took it and thanked him. He stuck it in his mouth and began to chew. He grimaced at the taste. Shard said with a sardonic grin, "'And here, Mackett, we all thought you were tough. Or is that stuff just recreational?' I've been shot and stabbed seven times. No, eight times, Mackett shot back. Sometimes it takes a bit of numb leaf just to get up in the morning. Mouthful of this stuff when I'm the toughest horse on walking the land. Fishbreath laughed, baring his rotten, blackened teeth. If you can walk at all, that is. The taciturn snake eye chimed in. Aye, and it takes the powder out of your cannon as well. Javin smiled. He had never heard Snake Eye's voice before. Chuckles rippled around the band of men as they chewed their food and sipped from their water skins. Even the sullen maggot smiled. Rusk and Carl approached, carrying the map of Halhamut. Listen now, lads. Here is the plan. Someone is coming, Master, Sathik said, kneeling at Hassad's feet. I spotted at least ten riders coming up the slopes, perhaps twenty, riding hard. With the darkness in the rocks, I could not get an exact count. Hassad said, Sound the alarm, double the guard posts, and douse any outside lights. Yes, Master, Sathik said, then stood up and ran to do his master's bidding. Hassad heard a chuckling 
The infidel woman's gold-flecked green eye blazed at him through strands of bedraggled wet hair. She gasped through clenched teeth. Pray to your horse-hunt prophets now, you smear of snake shit. You're a dead man. He snarled and lunged for her, snatching the ends of the ropes and circling her neck. He pulled, and her eye bulged. A thick vein throbbed on her forehead. Silence, infidel sow, he hissed. It took only a little choking for her to lose consciousness again. He released the ropes. He would not countenance an impertinent woman, especially an enemy, but he was not planning to kill her. Who was coming? He steepled his fingers as he paced the torture room. It was inconceivable that the Cuscan spies would have been able to follow them to Halhamut. No one in Alcott knew of the Brotherhood's presence in Halhamut. They had made sure that no maps or information existed of the fortress or the mountain beyond those safely stored within the high temple. But then, why were riders coming up Halhamut in the dead of night? They could not be his brethren. He had left strict orders to defend the temple to the death. Could they be Alcott's city guards? Perhaps Zameth Om Fathad Seventeenth had spies that knew the truth of Halhamut, or at least could see through some of the legend. But what could be so urgent in the middle of the night? If the Most Holy Priest King intended to attack, a force of twenty men was ridiculously insufficient. The forty-odd of his brethren here, along with the handful of women and servants, could hold off a force of thousands. The ancient mountain protected the fortress with its crags and rockfalls, the multitude of tunnels and murder holes. It was inconceivable, impossible, that these riders could be Cuscan spies but it seemed almost as unlikely that they were Alcott's city guards. Karaboth and Torak waited patiently behind him, unmoving for a command. He stood silently for some time, his mind swirling with possibilities and contingencies. Sathik's return broke Hassad's reverie. Sathik's eyes were wide, his breath huffing, his face bright with sweat. Master, they're gone! The riders have disappeared! Anticipation shivered up Hassad's spine. What? He found himself strangely unsurprised. The riders are nowhere to be seen. No Kalads, no men, either mounted or afoot. They are gone like smoke. They did not turn around and go back down the mountain. They did not turn around and go back down the mountain. Who else saw them? I was at the forward sentry post. I came to tell you of the riders and sent Zathram to watch in my stead. When I returned to the sentry post, Zathram said he had lost sight of them. I looked myself, but I could not find them, master. They must be hiding among the rocks. Could they hide so many Kalads, master? Thunder rumbled through the window, and Hassad saw that the stars had disappeared, blanketed by clouds. Moments later, he caught the whiff of rain. Go back and maintain your vigilance, Hassad said. The prophet will smile on us, and the spirit of Sadith will help us strike down the intruders. Yes, master. Sathik genuflected, and then turned and ran from the chamber. Javin crouched with Tonin behind the cluster of rust-red boulders. He could just make out the figures of Shard and Fishbreath slinking from stone to stone toward an innocuous cleft in the cliff face above them. In spite of the imminent dawn, the darkness deepened as thunderclouds rolled over the mountaintops. 
The scent of coming rain was thick in the air, but it had not yet started to fall. During their rest, they had mixed the reddish-gray earth with water to make a muddy paste that they smeared in streaks over their clothes and faces. Javin could still smell the half-dried mud. After a last headlong dash, the Furies had secreted their mounts in a shallow depression perhaps half a league from the summit. From the placement of the sentry posts shown on the map, Rusk had thought it likely that that depression would keep the Kalads out of sight of any of the sentries above. Now the Furies blended perfectly with the surrounding earth and stones, but they had to hurry. The coming rain would soon wash away their camouflage and foul their powder. They had found a number of short bows in the armory in the high temple. Four of the Furies now carried bows and quivers full of arrows, silenced with rags to keep them from rattling. Until now, Javin had thought bows to be archaic weapons, used only by hunters, peasants, and backward farthy. But he suspected that in the hands of Buck, Horus, and the twins, Edan and Mardan, the bows would be deadly effective. The escarpment above commanded an unobstructed view of the lower slopes. From a distance, no evidence of a sentry post could be seen, except that the map showed it clearly. Now that the Furies were only a few score paces away from it, Javin could see the darker opening that looked like a carved-out window. Cool, wet wind whistled across the rocky expanses, rustling dirt and pebbles. In these surges of noise, shard and fish breath moved toward the cleft, using the wind to conceal the sound of their movements. The opening hung in the cleft some twenty feet above the sloping base of the escarpment. The two Furies withdrew dark globules, each about the size of a fist, from their packs. Javin caught sight of a brief spark, and then they hauled and threw their globules toward the opening. The globules flew upward in precise, practiced arcs, trailing streams of whispering orange sparks, and disappeared through the opening. Cries of consternation echoed from within, and two muffled chuffs two dim flashes of light. Greenish-yellow smoke rolled out of the opening. Gaul! Rusk hissed. Carl and Horace rushed up the slope with ropes and grapnels in hand. At the foot of the escarpment, they flung their grapnels upward and through the opening. The hooks caught somewhere within, and just that quickly, the Furies were ready to storm up the ropes into the sentry post. Shard held them back. Wait for the smoke to clear. As the rest of them clustered around the ropes, Javid could faintly hear coughing and retching above. One more minute, Shard said. Those guards aren't going anywhere now. The smoke roiling from the opening dissipated in the stiffening breeze. Finally, Shard allowed them up the ropes. Javin watched Rusk wriggle his thick body through a narrow opening, the first to disappear, but the others followed closely behind him. As they waited their turn, Maggot asked Shard, What's in those things? Shard smiled his jagged smile. Perhaps when you have the fury on your flesh, I'll teach you how to make them. But let's just say there's a bit of bilewood bark, some dried blood leaf buds, a squirt of sand asp venom, among other things. Maggot's eyes widened, and he grinned, and he grinned. Really? You'll teach me? Aye, provided we happen to see the next sunset. Now get your arse up the rope. Javin hauled himself up to the sentry post with the rest of the Furies. The air was still thick with a sickly sweet, acrid, cloying haze. The stench clung to the back of his tongue, creating a patch of numbness there. His head began to swim. Rusk fanned his arms and coughed. I think we should have waited a wee bit longer. The two sentries had attempted to flee down the long, dark tunnel leading away from the sentry post. 
They had tried to close the massive bronze door that would seal the rest of the fortress away from the intruders, but the thick door hung half-closed with the still-twitching body lying beside it. If the sentries had managed to shut that door, the Furies would have blown their surprise and still be locked outside the fortress. But now, their way was clear. According to the map, Halhamut was a honeycomb of tunnels. The Absothans could move about the mountain at will, seal the tunnels against invaders when necessary, and never set foot in the open. After all, they had had centuries to work, forgotten and undetected. Shard was the last up the rope. Outside, the rain began to fall. Lightning crackled across the landscape. Rusk grinned his feral grin that Javin had come to recognize as the anticipation of death and battle, the cusp of the moment when he became fully alive, preparing to charge headlong with his killing tools in hand and his band of brothers at his back. Javin's heart thumped against the bottom of his throat. He smelled the rain and the sweat and the remnants of the green fumes, and the rain pattered through the opening, splashing in tiny droplets. A man could come to love this, or hate it, or some sickening mixture of both. Rusk said, Shard, you're the best footpod. You take the lead. Don't shoot me in the arse, boss, Shard said. Mackett spoke up. We'll save that pleasure for your ladyboy lover. That's too bad, Shard said. I was saving my arse for you, Mackett. Amidst more grim chuckles, Javin could sense it in all of them. Their words were rude and coarse and bawdy, but just like Rusk, these men had, for the first time since he had met any of them, come fully and vitally alive. It was as if, when they were not on the edge of death, they were only half alive, almost sleeping. Shard ghosted into the long passageway. Rusk waited for thirty heartbeats and followed. Edan and Mardan came next, with arrows knocked and their short farthy bows made of wood and yak horn. Far down the long tunnel a tiny square of dim gray light shone, but the rest of the passageway was black. The walls and floor were the same coarse stone. The rest of the Furies moved with surprising silence for such a heavily armed group of men in a confined space. To Javin, his own breathing sounded like the thunder outside. He could hear water sluicing through the rocks, trickling into the passageway through minute cracks. From the map, he remembered that there were two more linked sentry posts before the tunnel connected to the lower levels of the fortress. About a hundred and fifty paces of tunnel separated each sentry post, Javin, Tonin, and Maggot were relegated to the far rear of the column. For his part, Javin was happy not to be at the forefront of a hand-to-hand -hand with their deadly adversaries. The sheer good fortune of his last encounter with one lingered in his mind and fed him doubts about whether he could survive another such encounter. The column stopped. Javin could barely see from his vantage point in the rear, but at a silent signal from Rusk, Eden and Mardan dashed forward, drew, and released their arrows with the smooth alacrity that Javin had expected. All clear, Shard whispered down the line. The Furies moved on toward the next sentry post. When Javin passed through the sentry post, he saw two dead sentries, each with a single arrow through their skulls. The next sentry post fell, in like manner, and the deeper they penetrated into Halhamut, the more Javin noticed his chest filling with dread. This endeavor had so far been too easy. Were they really going to dance into the Ibsothan's ancient stronghold, find Bella, and dance back out again all but unscathed? The tunnel emerged into the bowels of the fortress, a broad, low-ceiling chamber whose wide, empty space was interspersed only with pillars and lamps. In times of greater population in the fortress, it might have been used for storage of food, supplies, weapons, 
but the profusion of dust and cobwebs bespoke a long lack of use. The floor, however, showed the passage of a great many feet, and the prints in the dust were recent. The map had shown this chamber to be like the hub of a wheel, the central point through which the absothans could move to any tunnel. It was also the most heavily fortified chamber aside from the main gates outside. Heavy bronze gates hung open to each passage, complete with individual portcullises and murder holes. Rusk grinned at them with an expression of fresh deviltry. Let's lock the sentries out. Isolate them, he whispered. Close the gates. Lock them. Might well save us having to kill a dozen or more of these bastards until later. Codsuckers, see to it. There were seven gates leading out toward the disparate sentry posts around the mountain summit. The three trainees spread out and crept toward the gates. Fresh footprints in the dust showed that there were indeed sentries down each passageway. The nearest bronze door was as thick as Javin's arm and so green with age none of the original metal was visible. He took hold of the heavy door and pushed against it, but it resisted his pressure. Thick, greenish-gray corrosion crusted the hinges, but there was no time to waste. He set his shoulder and heaved against the door. As it started to swing shut, it emitted a thunderous creak that echoed the peal of every alarm bell ever forged. Bloody fucking balls! Rusk snapped his fingers and pointed toward the other open gates, then at the doors above. The Furies rushed to close them. Hurry, or they'll fucking lock us in here. Our mission will turn into a bloody bockfuck. Carl, Shard, Horace, with me! With those three hot on his heels, he charged up the steps toward the level above. Javin and the others struggled to close the ancient gates. Javin peered down the dark passage. Footsteps pounded closer in the darkness. Finally, he slammed the gate shut and tried to throw the massive bolt. The bolt would not budge, held firmly in place by centuries of corrosion and disuse. He strained and shoved, but to no avail. Something slammed against the door, pushing it open far enough for a hand to reach inside, with a glinting serrated dagger that flashed past his ear. Javin threw his shoulder against the door with all his might, smashing the edge against the forearm. The arm snapped, the dagger fell, and a howl of pain echoed from the other side. He slammed against the door again, and the arm crunched and spurted blood. The arm jerked out of sight, and Javin shoved the door closed again. He pulled his dagger and used the steel point to jam into the softer bronze and try to pry the bolt into place. Behind him, one of the gates flew open, flinging Tonin onto his back, and two Ibsothans swarmed out of the darkness. One of them thrust his dagger at Tonin's chest, and Javin heard the grate of steel on steel. Tonin still wore his city guard breastplate. The other Ibsothan went down with one arrow in his chest and another in his skull as the twins Eden and Marden loosed their weapons upon him. Tonin cursed and struggled with the Absothan on top of him. Another heavy body plowed into the other side of Javin's gate, and still he could not throw the bolt. He dug and pried with the steel point of his dagger. Maggot had closed his door. He lunged for Tonin's open gate and swung it closed, jamming the bolt home. The Absothan on top of Tonin raised his dagger and slashed again, a bright red spatter of blood in the lamplight. He turned his dagger and used the pommel like a hammer, pounding on the end of the bar. Move, damn you! He hammered on the end of the bar while two assassins hammered on the other side of his gate. Hands were all around him, shoving against the door, helping him. A blast of foul breath told him that one of them was fish breath, and he caught a glimpse of Severn raising his foot to lay a powerful kick against the end of the bar. With a grating clang, the bar slid into place. The absothan atop Tonin fell to the side with an arrow through his skull, gurgling and spewing from his mouth and nose. 
Mackett's voice echoed through the hub chamber. Gate secure? A host of affirmative replies gave Javin a sigh of relief until Tonin cursed and swore a vile black stream as he rolled over and pushed up onto his knees, clutching his wrist. Blood streamed from Tonin's right hand and wrist. The hand hung limply, like a puppet without a string. Javin ran up to him. Is it bad? Tonin nodded, grimacing, gasping. It's bad! Severn slid up to Tonin on his knees. He pulled out a length of cord and quickly wrapped it around Tonin's upper arm, tying it tight. The spurt of blood slowed, and Javin could better see the terrible wound. Tonin appeared to have used his hand and wrist to fend off a slash by the dagger. Blood still trickled from a deep, jagged gash between his fingers, across his palm and wrist, and a loose flap of flesh hung from the meat of his palm. I'll wrap this up, Severn said. The rest of you, after the boss. We must secure the next gate or be trapped in here. Go! Without another word, the other Furies charged after Rusk, Carl, and Shard, with Javin in the midst of them. Above them, weapons clanged and thunder roared. Chapter 49 Javin charged behind the others into a slaughterhouse. A flurry of arms and blades and spattering blood filled the air. In the center of the room was a stone staircase, spiraling into the ceiling. The room looked to be the entry to the fortress dungeon. Grates of green bronze bars and doors partitioned the chamber, and corridors of tiny cell doors led back into darkness. Bodies splayed around the base of the central stairway like the spokes of a wheel's hub. Their gouged and slashed bodies spilled intermixing lakes of slick gore. Rusk, Carl, and Horace fought like moon devils at the base of the stairs, covered in so much blood it was impossible to discern how much of it belonged to them. Shard lay among the dead. Javin pulled his pistol, drew aim, and fired above the heads of his comrades at the absothans spilling down the stairs. From twenty paces, his shot flew true, and the heavy lead ball slammed through the head of one of the men coming down the steps. The body tumbled onto the shoulders of another Absothan, struggling arm in arm with Horace, knocking the Absothan onto the point of Horace's blade. Javin pulled out his pouch and powder flask and proceeded to reload. The Furies swarmed around the base of the stairs and tried to push the Absothans up the steps. Thirty heartbeats later, Javin had readied another shot. He leveled his pistol and fired again. Another Absothan fell from the stairs, giving Rusk a chance to lunge a few steps up. Rusk flipped his broadsword to his left arm and fenced defensively with the enemy above, pulling his massive four-barreled pistol with his right hand. He trained it like a cannon and fired into the chest of his opponent. The absothan spasmed amidst the cloud of blue-gray smoke and crumpled down the steps. Rusk kicked the body over the side and took three more steps. He cocked and fired again. Again the pistol spat orange flame, and again Rusk lunged three more steps over a corpse. His head and shoulders disappeared around the spiral into the ceiling. Another sharp report. Carl, Horace, Brick, and Fishbreath charged up after him, one by one. Javin could not remember from the map what was above them. His recollection had gone inexplicably blank, but it did not matter. He reloaded his pistol. If they did not make it out of this room and into the fortress above, their mission would fail. They would be doomed. Another report echoed down, and the Furies flooded up the steps like an uncorked bottle. After Javin tapped a few grains of powder into the priming pan of his pistol, he ran after them up the steps. He paused to check on Shard, but it was no good. Shard's throat had been slashed so deeply his head was half-severed. 
Javin rushed up and emerged into the heart of a large open building, an ancient guardhouse or barbican. Rain poured outside in a gray deluge. He looked at his pistol. A single droplet of water in the lock, and it would be good for nothing but a truncheon. The Furies were thirteen now. Through the windows and the open door, lightning flickered and crackled across the sky, startlingly close. Rusk held the thick barrel of his pistol in one fist and dumped powder into the four openings with the other. Same as the high temple. Everyone, hold tight to my arse. We take every room, every fucking closet, until we have Sasha and Bella in hand, and then we kill them all. He ignored the open, wet-lipped gashes in his clothing, focusing on jamming a lead ball down each barrel. Carl surveyed the courtyard and surrounding parapets. There's a light over there, boss, inside that building. He pointed across the courtyard. Javin moved to look. Through the downpour, a barely visible light burned within an open-walled structure in the middle of the courtyard, perhaps eighty paces away. There are people moving over there, he shouted. The sound of footsteps on the stairs behind them brought four furies around with their weapons poised to strike. Severn emerged from the opening in the floor. Chib's blood, lad, stay your hands! The furies relaxed. Tonin will live, Severn said, but tisn't much fight left in him. If we survive this, he may yet lose his hand. I left him back there to rest. Rusk nodded, hefting his pistol. Don't much need an interpreter now, in any case. Snake Eye looked outside through one of the Barbican windows. There's a light in that tower, too, boss. All right, then, lads, Rusk said, thrusting his pistol inside his shirt where it might stay dry for a short time. Ost, take your team and... Ah, bloody bockfuck. Carl, take Brick, Severn, Eden, Marden, and Javan that way. He pointed to the light in the courtyard. The rest of you on my arse. He lowered his head and plowed out into the dark rain toward the nearby tower with the light burning in one of the upper windows. The rest of them hurtled after him. Javin followed Rusk's example and shoved his pistol into his shirt to fend off the rain. Carl grabbed Javin by the shoulder and looked into his eyes. Just like the boss, stick tight on my arse. He plunged into the streaming gray dawn. They splashed through rippling puddles and shallow sluicing rivers, shouldered through plunging sheets of rain as they ran across the courtyard toward the light. The vague shape became a broad clay-tiled roof protecting an ancient stone wall in the center of the structure. Two oil lamps still burned in sconces on the square stone pillars, flickering feebly against the wind and rain. Carefully folded washcloths rested on the lip of what appeared to be an ancient stone bath. Resting atop the washcloths was a small, crescent-shaped knife, with the blade the length of a finger, mirror-polished and razor-sharp. A bronze incense burner, cast in the image of a half-moon, sat near the washcloths, its pungent smoke drifting into the rain. "'Where did they go?' Javin asked. Carl said, "'I didn't see anyone. Are you sure you saw someone?' "'I'm sure.' Javin gestured at the items. "'Someone was here.' The five of them looked out through the rain. They could have gone anywhere, Carl said. Follow me. We're going after the boss. Whoever was here, we'll deal with them later. Severn stood with his ear cupped, listening into the darkness. More shots. Javin had not heard any shots, but he trusted Severn's ears. Carl looked around the parapets and at the other main tower. Change of plan. 
There is no sense getting stuck behind the boss where we won't be able to fight. We'll try to flank the enemy. We'll be the boss's anvil, and he'll be the hammer. Let's go. Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Heerman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the Donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.